Have you ever had that moment when you just didn't know what to say? This is not one of those moments. <laughs> it's that moment when somebody you know very well, or maybe you don't know at all, has something very sad happen to them. You want to be able to help, yet you feel helpless. You want to offer words of comfort, yet wordless. It would be easier to not do anything. It would be easier to not say anything. Over the years of ministry, I've found myself in that situation on numerous occasions. I'm in the office working through a planned schedule. When the phone rings or my email inbox comes alive, and the message shows that somebody perhaps is at Cottage Hospital, having just been critically injured, or in their final moments of life even. And the question comes, would you please be able to come over right away? So in the car ride over, the radio is off. I'm lost in thought and prayer, wondering, what do I say? What do you do? I know the answer, but yet it always feels like there must be something more. Last fall, our men's retreat speaker described this, and I totally have experienced it. You get to the hospital room, which may be full of people, and as I come through the door, the, the group clears a path, as if I'm royalty. One can almost hear it said, oh, good, the pastor is here now. Everything will be okay. He will know what to say. The problem is, I don't know always what to say. But the solution is, God does. I may say a few words, I may read some scripture, I may pray, but mostly I'm silent and I'm listening. And sometimes I leave that room, I admit, discouraged because I will wish I could have done more. And it's then that God reminds me through his people Thank you, Pastor, for being here. Your presence means everything to us in this moment. Last week, we talked about the impact of good and bad decisions in the opening words of the Joseph story. And when we last left Joseph, he was pulled out of a pit and sold by his brothers to slave traders. This morning, I'm the setup guy for all the three parts that are to follow as we continue on in the story of Joseph. We're going to go through five chapters in five minutes. Our, yes, I'm the Fed, whatever, talking really fast. Our story with Joseph moves toward forward as Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, buys Joseph from the Ishmaelites. He became a successful man, the Bible says. Joseph became successful in chapter 39 too. It says the Lord was with Joseph. It also said his master saw that the Lord was with him. And in chapter 5, uh, 39 verse 5, it says the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. But then a problem occurs. And here's the family version of this portion of the story. Joseph was handsome and good looking. Potiphar's wife started to be attracted to Joseph. She liked him so much that she got mad when he obeyed God and did what was right by not returning the affection. She got him in trouble and put him in jail. The Lord was with him. 
While in jail, Mr. Dreamer, Joseph, interprets two dreams by a baker and a cupbearer from Pharaoh's court. They were also in jail. Joseph asked the cupbearer to remember him after he gets out of jail, hoping that Pharaoh will release him. The cupbearer forgets about him. The Lord was with Joseph. Two years later, the Pharaoh has a couple of dreams. He invites magicians and wise men to interpret. They got nothing. The cupbearer suddenly remembers Joseph from prison. He tells him about Joseph's mad skills in dream interpretation. The Lord was with him. Pharaoh calls in Joseph, who gets to clean up, shave, and put on good clothes. And Joseph tells Pharaoh, the dreams mean seven years of much rain and food. Everybody will be happy. The next seven years, there will be little rain and no food, and everybody will be sad. Joseph recommends Pharaoh find a real smart chief financial officer type person to help lead Joseph, Egypt through these years to come. And this person should plan to save lots of food during the first seven happy years for the second seven sad years to come. Who gets the call? Go, 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 Joseph, you know what I mean. <laughs> the Lord was with him. During the seven happy years, Joseph makes sure tons of food are saved. And in the second seven sad years when there's no food he opens the storehouse and yippee there is food for everybody there's food for everybody including Joe's brothers they come on a first trip all 10 of them arrive and come before Joseph he recognizes them they don't recognize him they bow all of Egypt is now bowing down to Joseph and do you think Joseph might have been thinking about those dreams he had where sheaves and stars and moons were bowing down to him earlier? Accuses them and even puts them in prison for a short time. And the brothers are surprisingly honest and saying, yeah, we've got two more brothers. One of them is at home with our father and one of them is no more. How do you think Joseph felt about that? Yet, he keeps a straight face. They want to go home, and Joseph says they can all go home except Simeon. In the meantime, he has servants sneak their money back in tax. Not until they get home do they realize they still have money and could be accused of stealing. The food is gone again. They must return a second time. This time, Benjamin goes along and they take double the money to hopefully cover themselves. Joseph sees Benjamin, and he plans a special meal. The brothers are surprised. They thought they may have end up as slaves, and instead, they're going to a meal. Try to return the money, and instead, the steward says, you owe nothing. Preparing to eat with Joseph, they bow down before him once more, and Joseph is overcome with emotion upon seeing Benjamin, and he leaves the room. Then Joseph once again accuses them of stealing. A silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack. He will be a slave, and the brothers are experiencing a nightmare. As he had 37, Judah rises to the occasion once more, saying, Benjamin's loss will cause Jacob's death. So Judah asks to become a slave instead. 
Judah confesses all that they've done, not knowing that he's standing in front of Joseph. Was all this about revenge for Joseph? Or was it to test his brothers and see if they had become men of character? The Lord was with him in all of this. Life takes twists and turns. There are few things that are constant, and those that are constant, they're not permanent. Like Joseph, we wrestle with God in our attitudes, our actions, our responses. And through all, the Lord, as Joseph, is with us. Are we recognizing his presence? Will we say, your presence, O Lord, means everything to us. The story of Joseph is one of my favorites because you see so much transformation in the lives of so many very imperfect people. So when my task for this morning was to preach one of the other texts in the lectionary to help all of us see the bigger story of the Old Testament, I wasn't quite sure what that was going to look like. And then I read Isaiah 56. This is a passage that you don't expect in the middle of a book about the restoration of Israel, but it illuminated new aspects of the Joseph story for me. So we're going to start with Isaiah first, and then we'll connect back to Joseph. Thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my revealed. Happy is the mortal who does this, the one who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and refrains from doing any evil. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Thus says the Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. God's description here stands in stark contrast to what we see in much of the Old Testament. In Joseph's story, we are still learning who the God of Israel is. It won't be until later that we will hear the 12 tribes of Israel named from Joseph's brothers. God describes himself over and over in the Old Testament by saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His people know to trust and follow God because it is who they are as a family. They are part of Israel. They are not foreigners. Here in Isaiah, God, an acceptance into his people does not require the ability to trace your lineage back to Abraham. The door for entry stands wide open, 
to those who will join themselves to God. For them, God promises that his salvation and deliverance are at hand, which means that although the eunuchs have no physical children, their name will be, not be cut off. And it means that the foreigners will be brought into God and into his house of prayer, and it will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. By the time Isaiah is writing, Israel is fully formed, but Israel is also threatened by outsiders. They tend to follow outsiders away from God instead of helping those outsiders see the God who is inviting them into his house. The idea of foreigners entering the house of God, his temple, would evoke images of desolation, not the fulfillment. And yet that is exactly the shocking news that Isaiah proclaims. The doors of God's house are open to those whom Israel cannot imagine letting in, all those who have bound themselves to God to serve, love, and worship him, to keep the Sabbath, to hold his covenant. God's hospitality runs deep, and the doors are open wide. When I reread Joseph's story with Isaiah 56 in mind, something, the Egyptians aren't portrayed negatively here. We know the rest of the story, so it's easy to read the end into the beginning. And eventually, the Egyptians will come to fear the Israelites, and they will enslave them, and God will have to step into history in a dramatic way to set his people free. But here in Genesis, none of that has happened yet. In Joseph's story, the Egyptians often seem to be more godly than Joseph's brothers. When Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt, God is with him, as Doug has reminded us, and his Egyptian captor knows it. He says that, he saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. So Joseph found favor in his eyes. When Joseph ends up in prison because he is a man of integrity, it's the Egyptian warden who puts Joseph in charge and he worries about nothing because the Lord is with Joseph and he gives him success in whatever he does. This happens over and over. The Egyptians name God as the one who is acting in the story. From the mouth of the Egyptian servant who's interacting with Joseph's brothers, we hear that it is God who has given them their treasure. When Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of Egypt, he does so because things known to Joseph. This is no battle between the gods of Egypt and the God of Israel. Here, Joseph, the man sold into slavery, opens his life and his knowledge of God to his captors. And his captors get to meet the God of Israel. And they are the ones who end up being used by God to save both Egypt and Israel from famine. Joseph has the wisdom and the knowledge of God to open the doors of God's house and invite the Egyptians to be the first other nation to be gathered into God's family if they will turn to God. We need eyes like Joseph. Eyes to see what God is doing, even when it's not what we're expecting. God's deliverance and salvation are coming, and he will be gathering in those who are outside. God has cast the doors to his house wide open. So the question for us is whether we sift and invite people inside, or whether we will be the ones in the doorway blocking people out. We'll now continue the story of Joseph by picking up in Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15. 
Um, We'll start by reading verses 1 through 8. So feel free to follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. Genesis 45, 1 through 8. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph's story has been speeding to moments since he was first sold into slavery by his brothers years ago. He now controls the situation. He has all the power in this relationship, and he has built this moment in a very particular way so he can let his siblings know exactly what he thinks, exactly how he feels. And to their surprise, Joseph does not come with a message of revenge or justice but a message of hope, of reconciliation, of love. Now, this is incredible. So we'll look at just verse 5 to see how Joseph has processed his time in Egypt, this horror of being sold into slavery. He dresses his brothers and says, Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. There's two parts of the state pointing out how Joseph has seen God working in his life. First, he implores his brothers not to be distressed or angry. It seems reasonable that these siblings would be horrified by their actions in light of finding out that this is their brother. But Joseph wants them to be at a place where they can forgive themselves. They can't change what happened, and neither can Joseph, but what they can do is celebrate that they've found us. One of the hardest actions we can do is to forgive ourselves. The guilt we carry around day in and day out is often overwhelming. Being able to forgive ourselves doesn't mean there are no consequences, but it does mean we're able to move forward. And this is exactly what Joseph is calling his brothers towards. This is exactly what God is calling us towards. The second part of Joseph's statement to his brothers looks at God's action even more directly. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph has moved past the anger and distress that he experienced when he 
was first sold into slavery and has come to this point where he can see how God has used his circumstances for good. Than Joseph being sold into slavery was a good thing. To be sure, slavery, regardless of who's being sold into it, is an abomination. It's reprehensible. God, however, is bigger than our actions and our intentions. God uses our brokenness, our circumstances, and even the sins of others to make beautiful things. We worship a creative God who can do this. This morning, I realized how fitting the story is for today, for this week, for the world we live in. God's providence, God's love, is the ultimate shaper of Joseph's life. Not fear, not hatred, not other people's actions, not his own actions. Our lives are fundamentally shaped by the love of God. That God can use anything and everything for his glory, regardless of human intentions. The real challenge for us, as it was for Joseph, is to accept that God will do this in his holy timing. We pick up the text in verse 9 of chapter 45. Go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, while Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked. So Joseph comes full circle, back to the place where he began with his family as a very different person than when they last met. Long ago, he was at the mercy of his brothers. Now they stand before him, understanding how he could exact his vengeance in ways that would make them pay for his years of exile. He has endured great hardship and pain because of would be understandable for him to want them to suffer. As TJ has shown us, Joseph has come to peace with the Lord's plan. He understands that God used what the brothers did in a bigger picture of helping preserve life in a famine for many, while also keeping God's people intact for the future. This is a lesson all of us can take with us. What we experience today is not only for us, with great intention and grace. We live so those who come after us will have a legacy of trusting in a God who helps us and saves us. God has been at the center of Joseph's life, although he did not always understand how. At its core, this passage is about reconciliation. There is the beginning of change in the relationship here with Joseph and his siblings. 
Where there was brokenness brought about by pride and hurt, now there is hope brought about by God's hand and a willingness to forgive. There are some key elements of restored relationship given that I want us to ponder. Reconciliation brings us face to face with what matters to us. When we have opportunity to come together with those that we have been estranged from, what is most important for us comes to the forefront. For Joseph, we see how it is that he wants to be connected again with his family. We wonder how he has longed for this day. We wonder if he has practiced in his mind what he would say to them and how he would respond. When first confronted with their presence and how they are there asking for help, we see that he doesn't know what to do. I'm away. He plays games with them. He leaves the room to weep. He makes sure that they all can't leave at the same time. Yet what he gets to is how much he wants to see his father again. How much he wants to have his family close by. Years have been wasted for them. And Joseph acts like a person who doesn't want another second to be lost. Crisis, we all learn what is essential to us. We have to pay attention when we're in crisis and it's over what comes up for us. For Joseph, it's family. Reconciliation is emotionally taxing. Joseph weeps so loudly that people in surrounding rooms and areas can hear him. He is wrenched. He's not the second in command to Pharaoh scenario. He is Jacob's son. He is a brother. He is a lost sheep. Seeing his family again perhaps brings up all of the past and churns up everything he has endured since their rejection of him. He went from being a favored son to being an exile alone. In all of it, God was with Joseph, but the up and the down and the up and the of life is draining. It isn't until his siblings are standing in front of him that he can let it all out. We are not robots. There are deep emotional wells where the pressure must be released in us as part of the healing process. In our own lives, we expect pain and tears as we grieve the past and how the pain of our choices, choices, choices of others have impacted us greatly. This is how we move forward. Reconciliation has to be a continual choice for restored relationship. Joseph has come to peace with what the Lord has done and is choosing to love those who hurt him. Now the next chapter begins. But don't you think that the next chapter might be harder than anything he has experienced? It's a joyous thing that they're all back together. But learning to live again as family, as kin, that will be a challenge. What does forgiveness look like in actuality? It would have been enough for Joseph to provide material for the brothers, to send them back home. But he wants to be connected with them again. This is one of the ways you know he is committed to growing as a because he's willing to engage with them, 
to know them, to be vulnerable to them. No matter what happens next, Joseph is laying the groundwork for deep ties by choosing to move on together, forging unity. It's a happy ending, but it's not the end. Relationships take work. There are going to be starts and stops. Old resentments are going to flare up alongside regrets and old of being with people that they know well and not at all. Their differences have not necessarily gone away. There's a wide gap where Joseph has not lived with them, and he's missed inside jokes and life experiences. It will be hard for him to not feel like an outsider. Reconciliation like this works as long as everyone keeps it a priority. The last line that we read is good to hear. The brothers talked to Joseph. I was thinking how very much Joseph is like Jesus in this story. It isn't enough that he gave his life as a sacrifice for others. He also wants relationship now with those who have benefited from what God has had him do. In our lives, we are given grace when we are estranged from the Lord. He has power over us, and he could do whatever he wants to us. But his life doesn't end there for us. He family with him to walk with him through life and to wrestle what it means to be in relationship with him. Joseph's life with his family shows us in many ways also what our life in the body of Christ is like. It takes work and time and forgiveness and a willingness to invest in hearing others. So every day, as Joseph has shown us, we have a choice of how we will live regardless of our circumstances. Conciliation begins in the heart. It is a choice to come together again with those with whom we have grievances and to live in peace. And peace doesn't mean sweeping everything under the rug or ignoring difficulties that we have with one another. Living in peace means that we continue to speak truth, that we continue to understand what it means to love, that we examine our own hearts, that we have difficult conversations and don't shy away from it. that God's grace is big enough for all of us as we love. No matter the past, we can choose to move forward together because we are God's precious gift. This is a huge takeaway of Joseph's life. At each step, however difficult, he allowed God to help him to persevere. This is what helps bring reconciliation as well. Never giving up hope of a better future, not just for ourselves, but for those who are impoverished around. Because in this way, we can be a vehicle through which God will provide his sustenance. So may you and I choose each day to love the Lord and to those he has given us as family.